0: Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. It is a curious fact how many European intellectuals, especially of the 18th century, believed that the experience of the Roman Empire and especially the fall of the Roman Empire was directly relevant to their own lives and the fate of the kingdoms or states that they lived in. One obsession was over whether modern Europe had reached a point where it surpassed in demography, economy, social complexity, political sophistication, the Roman Empire. Like, that was the standard, the benchmark against which progress was measured. But the fall of the Empire also elicited considerable anxiety and it still does. Um, Anyone familiar with American political discourse uh, you know knows that comparisons to Rome are rarely very far around the corner. I want to read to you a couple of sentences from the chapter 38 of Edward Gibbon's uh, history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and this is a passage where he has just been comparing modern Europe to the Roman Empire to Europe's advantage finding that it's a much more sophisticated and developed political network of political systems. But then he goes on to consider the possibility of a recurrence of the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, This is after all uh, in a chapter on one of the barbarian kingdoms that succeeded the Roman Empire in the West. And he goes on to say this, If a savage conqueror should issue from the deserts of Tartary He must repeatedly vanquish the robust peasants of Russia, the numerous armies of Germany, the gallant nobles of France, and the intrepid freemen of Britain who, perhaps, might confederate for their common defense. Should the victorious barbarians carry slavery and desolation as far as the Atlantic Ocean, 10,000 vessels would transport beyond their pursuit the remains of civilized society and Europe would revive and flourish in the American world, which is already filled with her colonies and institutions." Gibbon was considering here a scenario wherein a barbarian invasion issues from Tartary, this is Central Asia, and specifically a reference to the Mongols, and pushes the Europeans out of Europe, and they take to their ships and seek refuge in America. He did not believe this was a likely scenario. Yet he was right to associate such a scenario with Tartary because the Mongols were the last of the great Central Asian invaders that troubled Europe between the fall of the Roman Empire and subsequent European history. They had been preceded by the Goths and Huns and Avars and the Magyars, um, but the Mongol threat was in its time possibly the most terrifying in the 13th century, and it left a lasting impression, and even the 18th century lived still within its grip. It was just one of those cataclysmic events that come seemingly out of nowhere with no warning, like an earthquake or a volcano. There's nothing that you can do to cause it, prevent it, and there's not much that you can do When it happens, then try to survive it. Now, however much Europe was touched around the edges by the Mongol invasions, it was nothing compared to what the Middle East experienced. There we had some massive upheavals and a dramatic change in the entire framework of the international scene. Now, as it happens, the East Romans had just experienced their own cataclysm in the form of the Fourth Crusade, which had broken the Roman Empire into pieces. Paradoxically, this may have mitigated the impact of the Mongol invasions just a few decades later on, because the East Romans formed small pockets, small polities that were the, at the end of any possible Mongol trajectory toward them. So you would have to go down through Eastern Europe, all the way down to the Balkans, all the way down into Greece, so the very, very end in the tip of the Balkan Peninsula. Or if you're coming from Asia, you would have to go all across Asia Minor, all the way to the end, to the coast um, of the Aegean, in order to find the pockets of independent Roman power. These pockets were also much smaller and so less tempting than a larger and more robust Roman Empire would have been in the eyes of Mongol invaders. And so oddly, the Romans weathered the storm slightly better than their neighbors and gained an advantage over them because of it. My guest today to talk about the history of these events and the geostrategic context is Nicholas Morton, a professor at Nottingham Trent University uh, in the UK. And as it happens, he has just published a book uh, on this topic called The Mongol Storm Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. I think it was just released a few days ago in the US. I have just read it. I strongly recommend it if you want to understand what was going on in the Near East in the 13th century. Um, This is a very complicated period, um, but Nick lays it all out very clearly, and it includes both narrative and analysis, ranging from changing economies to ethnographies Um, and I think he nicely focuses his discussions both narrative and analytical around specific individuals um, which makes it easy to follow you know what's going on Um, and and, and there are some pretty colorful individuals in this period. (laughs) It really was a moment of opportunity for anybody who wanted to think out of the box. So we talk a little bit about, you know, what the Mongols were doing, what did they think they were doing, and basically the strategies by which other people could survive the storm. Um, And then we focus particularly on the Roman experience uh, of the Mongol storm. Anyway, it's a very vividly written book. I recommend it. Um, Without any further delay, here is my conversation with Nicholas Morton. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, great to be here. You wrote
0: an excellent book on the Mongols. Uh, This is a difficult period of history for a a lot of people. (laughs) Um, And why don't we start by setting the scene a little bit uh, so that people understand this is a very complicated period of history and we need to set the stage so that we can then turn to some more focused questions about the relations between Byzantium and the Mongols. Um, So what kind of the situation was the Byzantine Empire in at the time of the Mongol invasions of the Near East?
1: Okay, so the Mongol invasions of the Near East began in sort of 1218, 1220, and then there were several waves of Mongol attacks um, following that, perhaps the most significant of which were attacks in 1230, which conquered much of, or reinforced Mongol rule over much of Persia and the Caucasus, and then ultimately into Anatolia, that's modern day Turkey and then a further uh, major wave of invasions in the mid-1250s. So that's the background. There's multiple waves of Mongol attacks coming in as the 13th century develops. Now, in a sense, Byzantium not too badly placed for this, because it's still it's quite some way away from the Mongols' invasion routes, but it's still part of the broader political ecosystem of the region, which is being dramatically affected by the Mongols. Now, as for the Byzantines themselves, in 1204, as is well known, the armies of the Fourth Crusade brutally sacked Constantinople and then at least attempted to dismember the Byzantine Empire, creating in its place or in various parts of the former empire, various Frankish but often called successor states or uh, sort of the Aegean Crusader states or whatever you want to call them. And the most important of these was the Latin Empire of Constantinople centered on Constantinople, which of course sat directly over the former Byzantine capital. Now, for many years, there was a great deal of fighting between the Crusaders trying to conquer the Byzantine Empire and what was left of Byzantine resistance trying to hold them back. And so three main areas of resistance coalesced, one in Epirus on the Adriatic coastline, one at Trebizond in Northern Anatolia, but perhaps the most important was the empire of Nicaea at the Western tip of Anatolia. And this offered the greatest resistance in many ways to the Latin empire of Constantinople, which was the most powerful of the states to emerge after the fourth crusade. So the Byzantines, by the time the Mongols arrived, the Byzantines are trying to carry out this this both sort of protecting themselves but also a fight back, trying to get Constantinople back, trying to reconstitute their empire. But things are only complicated by the fact that they're also, to some extent, at war with each other. So Byzantine Epirus and Byzantine Nicaea, they're often rivals rather than allies, which creates a very complex situation.
0: Yeah, and because of this fragmentation, they must have presented uh, smaller targets, right? So if you're like the Mongols and you're coming eastward Uh, so westward into the near east but there was also another invasion route uh, in the north right sort of across the steppe north of the black sea into eastern europe from both of those um, avenues of approach what these little roman successor statelets would have appeared very small compared to the other major powers that you would encounter on the way right and they were also the end of each route, in other words, you would have to go all the way through the Balkans and all the way down into Greece, or all the way across Asia Minor to reach Nicaea. So they were like the last point right along either route. Um, I, and I thought I always thought that was kind of an advantage. Right? You're, you're small and positioned far away along either route. Um, so the, tell us a little bit about the Mongols themselves. Um, Perhaps what's propelling these major conquests, but also what kind of military advantages did they enjoy? Um, you have some very striking descriptions in the book about sort of a Mongol army on the move or these, these mobile encampments. Um, and these seem to be by far the most dangerous invaders of this part of the world, like in all of Byzantine and Roman history so far. So what's going on with the Mongols?
1: Sure. and uh, Of course, the background to this is the historic tensions and relationships and alliances between the central asian steppe region and the nomadic tribes therein and the agricultural societies around their periphery and of course everyone's heard of the of all sorts of uh, flashpoints and tensions and wars and uh, relationships between these different types of society and in some ways the mongols are um, very similar to other nomadic peoples who have encountered agricultural societies like the byzantine empire previously Mm-hmm. And the Byzantines have met plenty of nomadic tribes throughout their history, and they've conducted diplomacy with them, they fought with them, they fought against them, they have a fair idea of how they operate. But although the Mongols do have similarities to these um, previous nomadic peoples, there are differences. One of the big differences is that they are often nomadic armies are very effective on the battlefield, but the Mongols are extremely effective. They seem to have a very very advanced capacity, both for learning and for picking up new techniques. Now, most army commanders can do this, but the Mongols do this very, very deliberately. And so when they realise that they lack a facility, for example, in siege warfare, they start to pick up siege engineers from the cities and, and towns they conquer, often in China, but also elsewhere. In the same vein, they don't just invade and try and conquer people if they encounter a group of people who they like and think would sort of fit well within their own society they will often insist on that society being being merged with the mongols so they become almost mongols in their own right which will then serve to bulk up their armies Mm. mongols have also got some very effective commanders who just seem to have a really good eye for stratagems often quite uh, brutal stratagems but very effective nonetheless and of course the sort of the that the factor running through all of this is that as the Mongols enjoy success, they enjoy more success as their troops become more elite, as their commanders become more um, effective, and as their enemies become more and more convinced of the fact the Mongols simply can't be stopped.
0: Right. And they use terror as a very effective weapon, it seemed to me. Like there are all of these stories that circulate at this time that indicate how absolutely terrified people were of a potential Mongol invasion and that this terror by itself would sometimes cause you to submit from a distance rather than, you know, face their their armies. Right. And so you have some very striking stories about this. Is this a strategy that they used or is it just a literary trope in sources of that period?
1: It's difficult to be sure. It's difficult to be sure exactly how self-conscious the Mongols are deliberately creating terror. Some of the things they do, um, we hear stories of sort of piles of skulls and things. It could be a literary trope, although it does occur quite a lot, that kind of, or corpses being displayed rather than simply just being there. That would imply a self-conscious desire to create a degree of terror that you can never be quite sure what you're seeing in those accounts. I think it's probably much of the terror people felt is just from the sheer breadth of the Mongol conquests but they're everywhere. But by the 1240s, they're from the Pacific seaboard all the way to the borders of Hungary and Poland. Virtually no one proves able to stand against them. And so there is a very strong incentive to feel very afraid of them. Um, But you're right, There are societies have to come to a decision. They know the Mongols are coming. They know that they're going to have to face the question of what they're going to do about that. And basically reactions seem to fall into one of three categories. The first is they can fight. And if you fight, well, you stand or fall by the fortunes of war. And of course, for most people, at least in the first half of the 13th century, that's pretty much everyone falls. if They try and resist the Mongols. There are those who will submit early. So even before the Mongols are anywhere nearby, And the Mongols are very deliberate about treating these people very, very favorably. So they don't have to help have a Mongol garrison, for example, or not not a very large one. They don't have to pay a very large tribute. And so the Mongols are are playing a very very clear game here. If you resist us, there will be severe consequences. But if you embrace Mongol overlordship when you haven't really been threatened by us, we're actually going to treat you fairly well. And all of that creates an incentive, of course, to take the latter option. And the third option, I suppose, would be people who wait until the last minute to submit, but they often, they may not get invaded, but then they have a much heavier tribute. They've got to hold a Mongol garrison, and that can be a great deal more challenging.
0: Okay, so this is an interesting categorization, and we'll come back to it because um, in as far as I understand it, the uh, Byzantine approach was a fourth one, <laughs> which was to do nothing for as long as possible.
1: <laughs> you're right, you're right.
0: Um, and just wait and see if the Mongols take out your neighbors and see what happens. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what happens when you submit to the Mongols. Uh, well, there you go. I'm like, So what kind of empire are they aspiring to? Like what kind of command or control do they want to have over the, 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 the political structure, the economies of conquered people? Like what did the Mongol empire look like or feel like to those
1: who were in it? That's a very good question. Um, the Mongol, one of the, one of the central reasons for the Mongol invasions, which will either have been one of the main reasons or perhaps the main reason, it's only became the main reason for their conquests across so much of Eurasia is their belief that they have a right to rule the planet, and that right is has been bestowed upon them by the eternal sky, which is a sort of spiritual force that they feel has invested them with authority over all human civilization. And so that really is the sort of the, the mainspring of their actions. Now, in terms of those who submit, according to that worldview, those who submit have recognised that truth. They have, they, have, they have realized the Mongols have authority over the world and therefore they can be in the good camp because they have understood that truth or at least they're playing along with that truth in order to survive. Mm. Uh, what the Mongols like from their tributaries is they like their tribute paid on time. They like the leaders of that country to visit them in their court frequently. Right. And they like they like to it, it's to be very clear to anyone else in the court that these tributaries are arriving, they are acknowledging their subordinate status, and that of course become creates a visual spectacle for everyone else. But there's there's two sides to this particular tale, because not only on one hand you've got these various countries and societies and um, kingdoms and sultanates who have submitted to the Mongols, fair enough. But you've also got those societies themselves realize that they actually have a stake in the game because the Mongol Empire changes very rapidly. Its identity changes. Its expression of itself changes, particularly as it gets richer. Suddenly you've got these massive tents with golden nails and the Mongol elites have all these jewels and pearls and So the the nature of Mongol identity is changing very swiftly. And one of the big questions is what will happen to their religious beliefs? Will they remain Mm. um, at the the traditional beliefs of their forefathers, or will they develop into something different? And so one of the ironies is that whilst the the orders and the power may be coming out from the Mongol empire and its central commanders, its central wagon cities where all these things are taking place, um, as well as its major capital at Karakoram, which, is which isn't a wagon city, it's a, it's a walled settlement. Then you've actually got a movement in the other direction as well. You've got people from the tributary states coming into um, the Mongols' major major centres, whether wagon cities or Karakoram, and then trying to influence their Mongol masters. And what they really want is for their Mongol masters to accept their interests, pursue their claims, recognize their the lands or the territories or the privileges that they feel entitled to so that a tremendous amount of effort goes into trying to influence the Mongol Khan to try and encourage them to recognize their interests so they're, they're working their interests even within the, the Mongol Empire but of course the real objective the, the number one goal is can you convert a leading Mongol to your faith right. in which case so the thinking would go, they will become a great deal more tractable to your interests, to your right. policies, to what you are hoping for, whilst protecting you at the same time. So it's a strange two-way process. The Mongols are in charge, and they project that control on those who have submitted to them. But the submitted are also um, heading towards the Mongol Empire, Empire's major cities and wagon cities with their own agendas as well.
0: That was well put. Um, and that's... <laughs> the that's a jackpot if you can get them to convert to Islam or Christianity or whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of lobbying going on about that. And the sheer extent of this empire like opens everyone's horizons in many ways, especially this requirement that you travel to Central Asia to indicate your submission. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you're having to go to places where you, 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 know, you only had a dim awareness of before. Um, And this opens up all kinds of opportunities for trade and geography and so forth. And you talk about that in in the book, too. Can you indicate a little bit? So from the standpoint of like the Aegean and the Black Sea, so people's position there, um, what do these new trade horizons look like? I mean, how do things change?
1: Sure. I mean, just, just, just to reinforce the first point you made there about sort of broadening horizons. There's so many civilizations and societies across the Near East and elsewhere As as you say, they're sending emissaries out to the the major Mongol um, commanders and in doing so, they're learning about a much wider world. And the Mongols are also doing the same thing. Often many, many of the places they're conquering they've never been to before. They've had virtually no information about. And so there are examples in the sources of the Mongols asking about places that they now wish to conquer, but which they actually know very little about. And mm-hmm. you have emissaries coming the other way, asking the same kinds of questions. So it is a tremendously interesting time when it comes to sort of the broadening of so many different societies, horizons across Eurasia and elsewhere as they, they begin to see beyond the sort of the, the thought horizon of previous generations. But in terms of trade and sort of networks, there's a lot of change and a lot of that change impacts the Byzantine Empire. Um, some of the earliest changes, for my money at least, that would have affected the Byzantine Empire in a really big way, would have been in the late 1230s, early 1240s. Because as you rightly pointed out, you have a large Mongol army that goes sweeping through Western Eurasia, right, in, right all the way up to Hungary and Poland. And that army, within its many wars, its conquests, its raids, it displaces a lot of people. But many of those people are then captured, enslaved and then sold into the Mediterranean slave trade. Mm. Um, Many of them end up in Egypt. Others end up elsewhere. But that that too creates and expands an existing trade route of enslaved people in that area. But also the expansion across um, Western Eurasia resulted in a great deal of plunder as well. And of course, much of that plunder is also available for sale. And so the the Black Sea trade routes really sort of took off or grew in a number of respects, largely as a a result of what's going on further north. But there's another dimension to this as well because there's another um, dimension to the Mongols' invasions, which is their invasions through the uh, Near East and following the Mongol invasions into the Caucasus in the 1230s and then the conquest of the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate in the 12th, offering 1243. Again, you've got a lot of displaced people. We've also got a lot of people move, trying to move out of the way. And there are Byzantine sources from this period, which speak of trade growing rapidly with the Anatolian Seljuks, largely as a result of their movement westwards to get out of the way of the Mongol armies.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Byzantine's neighbors and how they were affected by the Mongol invasions to see how the Mongol Empire affected the geostrategic situation of the Byzantines themselves? How did it impact them?
1: That happens in a range of different phases. Um, in perhaps the earliest phase where the geopolitics of it all really impacts um, Nicea, it's probably the 1230s. Because the Mongol invasions through Western Eurasia towards Poland and Hungary, those displace a lot of um, Kuman tribes who move south and then ally with the Latin Empire of Constantinople which briefly gives the Latin Empire of Constantinople a substantial injection of new troops. So it plays out against the Byzantines briefly. And yet in 1242, on their way back from the invasion of Hungary, the Mongols, or one wing of the Mongol army, moves south um, and defeats the Latin Empire of Constantinople and then defeats the Bulgarian Empire as well. And so suddenly that wing of the of the Mongol army has defeated two of the Byzantine's most powerful neighbors on their northern um, frontiers. And then the following year, in 1243, mm. a mother well very, largely unconnected of Mongol army invades into the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate in Anatolia and defeats the Anatolian Seljuks. They then become a tributary state. Many um, Turks then look to the Byzantines for support and assistance. And so suddenly, in the space of two years, all of Byzantium's major, um, most proximate neighbours have been defeated by the Mongols and in some cases are looking to them for support. Now, of course, the Mongols didn't do this to benefit the Byzantines, but it benefited them all the same.
0: Right. Yes. It, it reminds me a little bit. This might seem completely um, yeah you know not in a in a, not inappropriate, but sort of anachronistic, but the um the u s. invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three and and previously of Afghanistan just benefited Iran. like the Americans just came along and took out the Taliban and they took out Saddam. <laughs> and they just kind of left Iran with this sort of hegemonic position in the whole region anyway, it's was quite accidental. It wasn't intended to do that, but anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so the Byzantines find themselves in a very advantageous position, except, of course, that you have Mongols running around uh, on the other side of your proximate neighbors. Um, so how did, how did the Byzantines deal with the Mongols, you know, directly or indirectly? Like, what was their diplomatic
1: approach? Sure. So in the years around the Battle of uh, Khuzedak, which is the the major Mongol victory over the Anatolian Seljuks. In and around those years, many of the smaller territories in Anatolia submit to the Mongols. So Silesian Armenia submits, Trebizond submits, Latin Empire, it's not quite sure what it did. It seems to have done something a little bit like submitting maybe in 1251. But in those years, all these powers are submitting, which of course rather exposes Byzantine Nicaea, which hasn't. So what does it do? And the Mongols do want the Byzantines to submit. There do seem to have been embassies sent to the Byzantines, but the Byzantines, (coughs) they they, they played a sort of a very diplomatic game. They tried to to avoid submitting, but without refusing to submit. So there was always a reason why they couldn't fully accept or receive the Mongols diplomats, and so they're, they're sort of playing for time. But that can't go on forever. And of course, the more that Mongols presence grows and grows, which it did throughout much of the 1240s and 1250s, it becomes harder and harder to say no. And during this time, Mongol control, particularly after 1256, gets even stronger over over Anatolia. And so the Byzantines will have been feeling an increased level of pressure. And it's in 1256 also um, that you've got the the major advance, at least into the Near East, the advance started a bit before this, of another huge Mongol army led by Hulagu, who was um, tasked with bringing additional areas in the Near East under Mongol control. Um, Perhaps the the best known event in that invasion is the conquest of Baghdad in 1258, which resulted in enormous loss of life, of course. but within that process, of course, the Byzantines will have been feeling increasingly isolated and increasingly pressurized by these growing Mongol forces. So what do they do with that? And I think it's quite interesting and quite indicative of the Byzantine's um, diplomatic strategies is that in 1257, the Mongols send ambassadors to Nicaea. And the idea is the I- Nicaeans will submit to the Mongols. Fair enough, but when we can look at a map and see that Byzantine Nicaea was very small, but that wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to the Mongols given that no one had maps uh, at this particular time, not not one that would accurately show the extent of the various territories. And so what the Byzantines did was to receive the Mongols ambassadors and then take them on the most circuitous route around Nicaea. And at every point in the route, they would station strong companies of soldiers so as to give the impression that the Byzantine empire was both vast and very heavily armoured. And that then set up the negotiations that happened. And the Byzantines, again, seemed to have ma- managed to find a way of not quite annoying the Mongols, but not refusing to submit either and just keeping the, keeping the conversation going without letting it reach a conclusion, which, um, is as you quite rightly say it's it's an approach no one else took in in the region but it kind of worked at least for a while
0: yeah and submission is after all it can be you know massaged in the presentation and this is something that you know happens periodically over the you know thousand year you know history of byzantium where you can you can appear to submit to a foreign, you know, power while making it seem to your subjects that you're not doing that, but doing something else, uh, maybe, you know, providing those poor barbarians with some assistance to, you know, so that they can rise out of poverty or whatever, when they think of it as tribute. Um, and correspondingly, you know, even on the Mongol side or the, the external power side, you can claim that the Romans submitted to you, you know, even though it's much more ambiguous in reality. And in, in, in that situation, both sides can perhaps feel, you know, satisfied, uh, even though it's all been left very murky. Uh, anyway, and the next stage is when the Mongols start fighting a sub, their own civil wars. And this presents openings, but also dangers. Right for um, Michael VIII, especially when they take back Constantinople in 1261. Uh, so, what were the circumstances then? How did it change, and how did Michael sort of
1: navigate, you know, those straits? Sure. So, yeah, the person who has to ha- who, who handles this is, as you say, Michael VIII Palaeologus. and he's new, he's he's not he's not the son of the former ruler. In fact, his 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 accession to rule in the Byzantine Empire, Byzantine Nicaea, um it's, it's 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 essentially a, a usurpation from mm-hmm. um, oh yeah very much so. John the Fourth yeah it's he's very careful not to present it in that way but in its essentials okay. that's what happened um, and yes he is he is the ruler who reconquers Constantinople and so his, in so many ways his rule is a time of flourishing and growth except that that's not all it is. It's it's a lot more complicated than that because to the southeast, you have Hulagu with an enormous Mongol army in the Caucasus and northern Syria. And Hulagu wants the Byzantines to submit. Now, we don't know exactly what that treaty looked like. It's very blurred. Mm. The actual agreement that was reached. Now, for myself, I don't doubt the Byzantines either submitted or at least gave the Mongols the impression they had submitted. But that's not what the sources tell you. That's simply because the Mongols, at this time at least, wouldn't accept anything else. Mm. Um, So something happened then. Yeah, and and, the Greek sources
0: uh, won't admit that at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, five years later in 1265, that's secured with a marriage alliance too. So um, Michael VIII is very close. He does work hard to build relations with Hulagu in the Near East. But as you quite rightly point out, it's in those early 1260s that you've got the beginnings of the major Mongol civil war between what will become known as the Khans of the Golden Horde in Western Eurasia and Hulagu and the Ilkhanate in the um, Near East. And those are essentially two fragments of the broader Mongol empire as it begins to break up during this period. And so as that war really sort of gathers pace, uh, as the Caucasus becomes the sort of the major front line in the in the conflict between those two territories, to some extent that serves to set the pressure off many people who are fearing a Mongol invasion. And certainly, um, looking at this from an Egyptian perspective, from the Mamluks who scored a victory over over a Mongol force in 1260 at Ain Jalut, but then spent the next twenty years wondering whether the Mongols were attack again. That civil war works very much to their um, to their advantage, and the same is true. For Western Christendom, which was also fearing a big invasion at around that time. But that also didn't happen because the Golden Horde was turning its attention towards um, the Ilkhanate. So for many people, this is good news. For the Byzantines, it's kind of good news. Because whilst I don't doubt that they appreciated the sort of the, the sort of slight diminishing of the pressure of the ongoing advance of the Mongol Empire, they are now in command of Constantinople and they have a border with Anat- the Anatolian Seljuks, who of course are Mongol tributaries. Now the Golden Horde to the north, they want to make sure that Byzantium's on their side because they want to be able to use the trading route through the Bosporus, and they have a frontier with the Byzantines in, in through via uh, Bulgaria, which is also a, a Mongol tributary. But the Ilkhanate in the Near East, they also, Want the Byzantines to be their allies Mm. because they have a border with the Byzantines in Western Anatolia. So the Byzantines find themselves in a position where they have two major Mongol powers, both of whom want them to be subordinate to them. But of course, they can't be subordinate to both. And so the Byzantines try a very risky strategy, but it actually kind of works of trying to persuade both those Mongol powers that they're kind of sort of on their side without anything the other one and and again they keep this going and it kind of works because although there is there is a very brief um raid into byzantium in 1263 really the byzantines do escape any serious mongol invasion throughout the entire period that we're looking at in the book here at least
0: and i should say that this is a strategy that Michael VIII is also using toward the West, um, and doing so especially in the 1270s, where he's, I don't want to say pretending to enforce uh, union with the Catholic Church on his own subjects, because he actually kind of was, um, but he was doing that in order to fend off an invasion, uh, from a, a French invasion. So if you can persuade the papacy that you're trying to enforce union in good faith to prevent an invasion from another papal ally. And it's a kind of, can you keep that going long enough until something happens that changes the situation? Uh, which it did. Uh, he was very lucky in that regard. Uh, the Sicilian Vespers that sort of took out, you know, Charles of Andrew. And the, anyway, sure. uh, so Michael seems to be playing this kind of game on both sides. And I, I can't imagine how scary it would have been. I mean, you really would have to have nerves of steel to be yep. playing with two Mongol powers like that. Kind but of
1: he There's there's no no alternative here except to choose a side.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. He's not one for choosing sides. Um, So in a sense, Michael was allied to two Mongol rivals um, on and off. Did this um, alliance pay off for him? Did the the Byzantines benefit from being allied to the Mongols in this way and how? Yes and no. I
1: mean, they benefited from the... they benefited from the fact that they weren't going to get invaded, uh, which is always a good thing. Um, but of course, all the other regional powers, such as Anatolian Seljuks, Silesian Armenians, Bulgarian Empire, Latin Empire, Constantinople is gone, of course. All these other powers, which formerly might perhaps have been either favourable or unfavourable, either in diplomacy and war. They're all aligned to the Mongols. So in a sense, there is a, there is a safety net via being aligned with the mongols provided you can keep hold in tension the fact that you're allied to two mongol rivals mm. um but that's a that's a difficult tension to keep the problem for the byzantine empire at least on that quarter because of course as you quite rightly point out it's having to maintain a very different set of relationships with um, powers in western christendom and the mediterranean as well yeah The problem is that the Mongol invasions into the Near East and elsewhere displace a lot of people. And among those uh, various peoples and communities the Mongols displace are substantial communities of nomadic or semi-nomadic Turkmen. And those move increasingly into Anatolia in very large numbers. And the Anatolian Seljuks, who have always struggled to maintain a control over those Turkmen because they're now being weakened by their tributary status to the Mongols. They can't keep them under control. The, the Mongols try every now and again, often with very, very sort of punitive military incursions, but they can't hold down the Turkmen tribes either. And so there's a spate of rebellion after rebellion, and these begin in earnest in the 1260s and continue really throughout this period. But the more the Turkmen rebel, the more the Mongols struggle to hold on to the, um, particularly Central and Western Anatolia, they're stronger in Eastern Anatolia. The more they struggle to hold on to the Turkmen tribes, the more the Turkmen tribes um, rebel against them and then begin to form what will become, of course, the Turkmen Beyliks, uh, most famously the Beyl- um, what will become the Ottoman Empire. Now this plays out, um, this is difficult for the Byzantines because whilst they can deal with the Mongols, the Mongols have limited control over the Turkmen and the Turkmen are looking often to get out of the way of the Mongols armies and they need grazing. And so the Byzantine's front line in Western Anatolia is very hard to hold, particularly against nomadic tribes who aren't particularly interested in attacking frontier strongholds and towns. They want grazing. But of course the Byzantine defensive strategy is predicated on fortified towns and strongholds. There is is one moment where they try and build a sort of a, a full scale permanent structure along at least one part of the frontier, because presumably as a, a reflection of the fact that they have to provide you know, a complete barrier. They can't just have individual strongholds, but that proves to be too great an undertaking. And so the real, the real challenge for the Byzantines on the Eastern frontiers are these Turkmen tribes, whose numbers are growing, they need land, they need pasture, they become more and more organized, The Mongols can't really keep them under control, and it's that that really causes the Byzantine position in Anatolia to begin to erode until ultimately it falls entirely.
0: Yeah, that was a major turning point around 1300, the the loss of Asia Minor to precisely these Turkmen tribes that um, are being pushed or are moving uh, further and further to the West um, in Asia Minor. And uh, this is part of the... This expansion that we talked about earlier of both geographical horizons and of trade, but it also it allows for the movement of peoples within the greater Mongol Empire. And this is just another one of those aspects. You, you can benefit from trade. You, you know, also geographical knowledge and Byzantine scholars are going uh, further east into Persia to learn, you know, astronomical you know, developments and things like that. Like we know about all of that. But at the same time, that mobility cuts in the other direction as well. Um, and so ultimately it's sort of the, the knock-on effects of the Mongol empire that proved to be pretty disastrous um, in, in Asia Minor. And, and the, the, I mean, disastrous for the, for the Romans. Um, and the Mongols were just like unable to control um, these, um, th- these Turkish tribes, n- really no more than anyone else had ever been. <laughs> like cool. the Seljuks hadn't been able to do, it. <laughs> yeah. This is like That's- a perennial feature.
1: Yeah, and it's this is going on not just in Anatolia. It's going on in Syria too, because the Crusader states, and it's one of the least known um, sort of themes of the history of the Crusader states from from about 1240 onwards. They are really, really struggling to maintain their borders against other Turkmen groups, um, often to the north of the Sea of Galilee, or trying to push into. into the Amurk Valley near Antioch, or into Lesser Armenia, trying to get into the Armenian coast coastlands. That's the pressure exerted by those Turkmen tribes means that about a good chunk of all the military conflict that goes on on those frontiers as well is those various um, states trying to hold back Turkmen incursions, because of course the Turkmen they want to get out of the way of the Mongols, and of course they need grazing desperately, and so that creates all sorts of conflicts further south as well. Yeah, and which is, reminds
0: us of the importance of geography here. Um, if you look at the long-term, if you take a long-term view of the history of Byzantium, you realize just how important the the Bosporus Straits and the Hellespont are because they break those movements at very strategic times. Uh, this happens in the 7th century when the Balkans basically fall to the Avars, which are like essentially kind of proto-Mongols, if you want to think about them that way. Um, but that movement is stopped at Constantinople and the Bosporus, like they, you know, and and the Persians can't cross over in the other direction either. Um, And this time it's in the opposite direction. So you lose Asia Minor, but they managed to hold on in the Balkans for another century and a half, uh, precisely because of that. And I I just think that this geographical location is just so uh, determinative of the evolution of the Byzantine state in, in these key moments anyway the mongols never took to sea successfully did they
1: not in western eurasia of course there were there were various attempts to invade japan but they did they didn't work either so um
0: great um nick any final thoughts about the mongol invasions um what should modern readers take away of you know i mean they can they certainly should read your book uh but How, from a distance now of seven centuries, do we think about the Mongol invasions? Like, how did they change the world in ways that we might see?
1: Sure. I mean, perhaps I can answer that just with reference to a a long-standing question that goes back to childhood, really, which is the whole issue of the famous historic relationship between nomadic societies and agricultural societies. Now, as an academic, I realize that question is too simplistic, because, of course, nomadic societies have an agricultural dimension to them. Mm -hmm and agricultural societies have nomadic dimensions to them as well. But nonetheless, how does that relationship work? And so for me at least, what is interesting about looking at the Near East during this era is you have various nomadic societies, you have various, I call them hybrid societies, which sort of have qualities of both. And the Mongols increasingly become a hybrid society because whilst they remain nomadic in their way of life, they're nonetheless drawing upon technologies and artisans and specialists and taxation systems from other places. And then you have agricultural societies as well, which are at least predominantly based on the classic sort of estates and land holdings and towns and the fixed infrastructure of that kind of society. And the more I read the book and the more I, sorry, the more I wrote the book and the more I thought about it, the more I realized actually that the societies that survived least well the agricultural societies, because Mm. in this era, at least, they simply don't have the technology or the ability to hold back the ongoing incursions of nomadic raiding parties or indeed nomadic um, armies. And so, as I said, with the Byzantines, those lines of strongholds just won't cut it because that they they won't they they, people Mm -hmm. won't stop to try and besiege those strongholds they'll just go straight past them and seek out the grazing and then the castle's garrison will eventually die of starvation and have to leave and so that's just that's just a, a simplification but it that it does prove during this period to be very difficult for agricultural society to survive in the face of a growing hybrid or nomadic society and the ones that survive best including the Mongol Empire, but also including other societies that have sort of elements of both, um, is they seem to be able to, to mix the virtues of both nomadic and agricultural societies to create something that is stronger than some of its parts. And it's those societies that seem to do best. And for me, at least, and again, this goes back to sort of the childhood question, because somehow there's a sort of underlying expectation that agricultural societies are in some way superior because they're the ones that survived and ultimately they're the ones that through many historical processes saw the decline in the nomadic way of life. My point here is that that is not the case, certainly not in this period where in many cases, it's the agricultural societies that are least resilient and least able to cope in the face of multiple different types of societies, all sort of uh, conducting diplomacy and acting as rivals for one another in a fairly small space.
0: It's interesting that you should say that for a couple of reasons. First, because you're pointing to this thesis of uh, John Darwin's book, uh, After Tamerlane, um, which talks about, it's the history of modern empires, like 1500 to today. Okay. And he he picks up essentially where you're leaving it right here. like Uh, That for a long period, the most successful empires are precisely the ones that you're describing. And it's not until very, very late. Um, that these you know European colonial powers start nibbling around the edges of what are otherwise these sort of Central Asian empires that, that that are much more dominant. Um, so i I just made that connection, so it's interesting that that your story ends where his picks up. Um, with okay. with Tamerlane, who was like the last of the great you know uh, Mongol conquerors,
1: I'm pondering the idea of writing a sequel to to Mongol Storm, which might then embrace. Um, Tamilin, so, or Timothalem,
0: so, yeah. Right. <laughs> I translated one of the sources for him, uh, Laonikos Calgoconzilis, though he's writing from quite a distance, and it's kind of garbled, <laughs> it, was, it was fun to translate, anyway. Um, and the other interesting thing is that it's precisely in the terms that you just outlined, that Byzantine writers in the 14th century talk about the issue, and I found it fascinating, uh, there's a Byzantine intellectual, he was a statesman and philosopher, um, Theodoros and he wrote a series of essentially incomprehensible essays because the Greek is very, very hard. There's like a, a 800 pages worth of them. And a number of them are on precisely this question of which type of civilization is now dominant. And he has these essays on, quote, the Scythians. And so this is what the Byzantines called anybody who, you know, matches that kind of, you know, civilizational style. and. In contrast to the whole of the past millennium, in fact, going back to Herodotus and you know whatever, the, where cities and settled agricultural life are the norm and a superior way of life, Medo-Hitti says, no, it's the Scythians that are the wave of the future. Like they're just off the charts in terms of power, like we can't even compare, which is not, it's very unusual thing for a Roman to say. And then his student, a generation later, this is Nikiforos Grigoras, another intellectual. And so he's writing this Roman history. And he falls back on the trope that I found in your book, but from other sources. I I found it fascinating that this was actually going on, that the Mongols have now become corrupted. Like they're all into jewels and and fancy couches and, and lavish dinners. And so they're no longer the kind of threat. And he's writing around 1350.
1: And that, that, that's the, 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 the idea or the, the idea similar to that, which I found inspiring was um, Ibn Khaldun's analysis yeah. as as dynasties go on and as they become incredibly powerful. And as they acquire all that wealth and all the rest of it, that something within that, that the virtues that originally created the empire begin to sort of move away. Yeah. I don't know whether the, whether, whether the Mongols' wealth affected their thinking, but certainly the question of how they divide up their vast territories, that became incredibly um, divisive to the point at which they were actually prepared to carry out civil wars, ending their wars of expansion in order to pursue those claims. Yeah. And we don't have a Mongol empire today.
0: <laughs> that doesn't last like the Roman, <laughs> anyway. Though, you know, there are actually some very interesting sim- similarities in, in the way that the Romans and the Mongols created their empire. And, this might sound counterintuitive to a lot of people but when you were saying earlier that the mongols forced people to join their armies and thereby sort of increase their strength and there's this process of inclusion now we normally think of inclusion as a a good thing but in these contexts it can be incredibly coercive and something similar happened at times with the spread of roman citizenship so you know how the romans would extend citizenship to everybody and it's very easy and tempting to take it as a sort of benign view that ah, the Romans have a very inclusive kind of sort of commonwealth approach. But in the days of the Republic, this is often a way of punishing people. Mm. You give them Roman citizenship because then they're integrated into your military structures and they have to provide like it's anyway, it's not always a, uh, you know, a positive anyway, whatever. Um, Good. Nick, I enjoyed reading the book immensely. Thank you for writing it. And thank you also for coming onto the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So when you write the sequel, let me know. (laughs) Certainly will. All right. Take care.